0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your servant James and for the the, um, the the letter, the teaching that he wrote down so many so many years ago that we can still benefit from. And so we pray that um, in the, in the hearing of, of his um, of his letter, the your word, that uh, we would benefit. Uh, from what he has to say to us. Um, may the, the preaching of the word be uh, profitable in our hearts. We pray that you would make us receptive, our hearts soft, and open our eyes to see and to, to hear uh, you speaking to us. We uh, pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The good news is there's no hills nearby. So, nothing to worry about. Well, um, we have after, after seven Sundays finally arrived at the end of the first chapter of James. Uh, Jonathan read for you the entire chapter. Uh, but this morning we're going to be focused on, on the last two verses, verses 26 and verses 27. And these two verses begin with a warning against what James calls worthless religion. And this is the religion of those who, who think of themselves, you might even say they, they fancy themselves religious in both heart and in mind, but their religion is based on, on a moral perfection that the tongue will inevitably expose and prove worthless. James calls it worthless. Another term for it would be pharisaical, right? This was the religion of the Pharisees with whom Jesus was, was constantly butting heads during his ministry. In chapter 3, James calls the tongue a fire, a world of iniquity, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. It stains the whole body and no one can tame it. The tongue is always there to poke holes in the self-righteousness of a religion that appeals to moral perfection as the basis for justification and peace. The tongue reveals that the heart and mind have created an idealistic version of the self. A religion based on moral perfection creates an idol of the self. However, this is an incredibly self-conscious and anxious idol, because the tongue is always threatening it. The tongue reveals the heart, as Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter six. Therefore, the self-righteous are simultaneously always appealing to themselves while running away from themselves. Tim Keller, in his book Reason for God, describes the unstable nature of a a pharisaical religion that's based on moral performance. He writes, they build their sense of worth on their moral and spiritual performance as a kind of resume to present before God and the world. The moral and spiritual demands of all religions are very high, and Pharisees know deep down that they're not fully living up to those standards. They're not praying as often as they should. They're not loving and serving their neighbor as much as they should. They're not keeping their inner thoughts as pure as they should. The resulting internal anxiety, insecurity, and irritability will often be much greater than anything experienced by the irreligious. But since the Pharisaic form of religion relies upon moral purity, the, the Pharisee does not recognize repentance as an option in in the religious competition to be the best. Indeed, they inevitably resort to comparison. Right? If you can't be perfect, and the tongue is always making that obvious, which they, and they secretly know, then all they have to be is better than the next guy, right? It's like God's a bear that all of humanity is running from, and all you have to do is be faster than the person next to you, right? Pharisaic religion, religion that's worthless, as James calls it, becomes extremely critical and harsh in its assessment of others. A defensive and and angry posture is assumed because the Pharisee views everyone as a threat to their own fragile righteousness. It's incredibly damaging for the soul of the Pharisee, but also for the church and for society at large. Tim Keller, again in his book Reason for God, details the damage of a religion based on moralistic performance. He writes, pharisaic religion doesn't just damage the inner soul, it also creates social strife. Pharisees need to shore up their sense of righteousness, so they despise and attack all who don't share their doctrinal beliefs and religious practices. Racism and cultural imperialism result. Churches that are filled with self-righteous, exclusive, insecure, angry, moralistic people are extremely unattractive. Their public pronouncements are often highly judgmental while internally such churches experience many bitter conflicts, splits and divisions. Millions of people raised in or near these kinds of churches reject Christianity at an early age or in college, leave, uh, in college largely because of their experience. For the rest of their lives, then, they are inoculated against Christianity. If you are a person who has been disillusioned by such churches, anytime anyone recommends Christianity to you, you assume they are calling you to adopt, quote-unquote, religion. Pharisees and their unattractive lives leave many people confused about the real nature of Christianity. Indeed, Pharisees leave many people confused about the real nature of Christianity and about the nature of God himself. Pharisees, because they're relying on their own moral perfection, inevitably begrudge grace and forgiveness. Grace is a violation of the rules. We see this clearly in the story of the the prodigal son, which really should be called the story of the prodigal sons, because the elder son, the one who stayed home and never rebelled and kept all the rules of the house, house, proved to be just as lost as the younger son who left home to live a depraved lifestyle in which there were no limits or restraints. And when the money ran dry for this younger son, he finally returned home and the the father who loved his son despite his profligacy celebrated his return. He threw an extravagant party for the son who had blown all his money on extravagant living. And it was an act of incredible grace and love. But the elder son refused to come to the party. Instead, he was pouting by himself. He was feeling sorry for himself. Why had he been so obedient all these years if even the rebellious son gets celebrated? The young son in his eyes did not deserve a celebration. He did not earn it. Those were the rules, but the father was breaking them. And the older son begrudged this show of grace from his father. He resented his father's love that forgave the offense of his younger brother. He fundamentally misunderstood the heart of the Father. And so does everyone who pursues God's favor through performance, through quote-unquote religion. Grace becomes offensive when you've come to believe it's earned. A savior too becomes unnecessary. As Keller said, the soul of the Pharisee is endangered by religion. But so too are those people who experience and react against Pharisaical individuals and in churches? Religion is often rejected in favor of irreligion. Right? But the problem with irreligion is that it's a change in substance, but not in form. The irreligious still measure people with the same stick. God's cut out of the equation, but the ruler remains. People are accepted or rejected by the irreligious depending on their conformity to a set of expectations of what makes a person loving or good. This is inevitably a moving target as unique as the diversity of people who call themselves irreligious or spiritual but not religious. Each person is left to create their own set of expectations which is attractive because you can cut out the nagging self-consciousness and anxieties that plague the moralistic religious but the judgment and condemnation are preserved. It's instead a judgment and condemnation based on an individual standard rather than an inherited religious one. There's no escape from self-righteousness in religion or in irreligion. Right? You, may, you may even point to the, the pleas of the irreligious to, to just be left alone in their beliefs, right? to be free from the judgments of others as a way out of this self-righteous dynamic. And if we all believe what we believe personally and let everyone alone in their pursuit of their personal truth, and don't try to persuade anyone that they're wrong in their conclusions, then that will bring disagreements and judgments to an end. However, such a position is in itself a measure by which to judge others. A good and loving person is a person who doesn't believe in some absolute truth or engage in conversations or judgments in pursuit of that truth. That is in itself a self-righteous standard So it seems there's there's no escape from self-righteousness in either religion or irreligion. And the gospel alone offers an escape, though, because the gospel is neither religion or irreligion, but something different altogether. The gospel is divine grace. The gospel is divine grace. Having spent... Verse 26, warning about the danger of Pharisaic moralism that results in worthless religion, betrayed by the tongue. James introduces in verse 27 a definition of true and pure religion. He writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And the confusing thing about James's definition of true religion here, particularly in light of his previous warning about moralistic religion, is that in verse 27, James lists religious behavioral requirements, caring for orphans and widows and keeping oneself unstained from the world. And we'll talk about these requirements in a minute, but these were things that the Pharisees appealed to in themselves when attempting to justify themselves in God's sight. We, we care for widows, we care for orphans, we, we, we keep ourselves pure from the world. What then makes the religious behavior James promotes here pure, undefiled? It's the acknowledgement that all religious behavior is done in the presence of God the Father. James did not have to mention that God was also Father, but he does, and it's hugely significant because James is pointing out that there's already a relationship before we even receive our instructions about how to behave. A relationship precedes religious behavior and the relationship is not contingent upon it. God was our father before we had done anything good. In fact, in verse 18, James has said that God gave us birth. This familial relationship was one that began at his in this initiation. We had nothing to do with it. Scripture employs several images to to communicate our position before God had mercy on us and gave us birth, right? We were dead, we were enemies of God, we were sinners, we were foolish, weak, impoverished, we were not his people. But our lamentable condition in every single instance was reversed at God's initiation. And in Romans 9 the Apostle Paul is quoting the promise of God first articulated by the prophet Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. You see, God adopted us as his children when we were orphans undeserving of his name. It was love for us alone that motivated him. His was a love so great that his his true son, his real son was willing to swap places with us and the father was willing to let him go. See, Jesus Christ, the true and only son of God was treated like an enemy and a stranger on the cross. He was torn to pieces and when he called out to God, he received silence in return. But he endured and he submitted to this so that we, God's true enemies on account of our sin, might graciously be called sons and daughters of the living God. It's grace, you see. Grace is the foundation of true religion. We've earned nothing but God's displeasure in a fractured world through our selfishness and insatiable desires. Jesus Christ, however, earned for us our position as God's children through the sacrifice of himself. This familial relationship, founded on divine grace, precedes all religious behavior. And it fundamentally changes the motivations of our moral behavior. We care for widows and orphans, keep ourselves unstained from the world, not because we're trying to secure our relationship with God, but because we are secure in Christ. And we're mimicking Jesus like a child that mimics her father simply because she adores him. Jesus certainly kept himself unstained from the world, the temptations and narratives of a broken world. And he spent his ministry caring for the vulnerable, for widows and for orphans. And we're now called to follow him in this work as his children, with gratitude, adoration, and love as our motivation. But this familiar relationship founded on divine grace also fundamentally changes the way we think of others and of ourselves. Right? Moralistic religion requires individuals to project perfection while harboring a secret insecurity because they intimately know that what they're projecting is false and that they aren't actually able to live up to their own standards. And people who ascribe to moralistic religion are arrogant when they feel they're doing good and they feel like utter failures when they're not hitting all the marks they've set for themselves. Tim Keller describes how the gospel provides the resources to build a unique identity. He writes, the Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. The gospel fundamentally changes how you think of yourself. And it introduces a stability that could never be achieved through moralistic religion. It allows you to be humble and to be confident at the same time. And if it alters how you view yourself, then it necessarily alters how you view others. Again. Keller explains that the gospel, because it tells you that you're so flawed that Jesus had to die for you, means that I cannot feel superior to anyone. And because the gospel also states that I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me, I therefore have nothing to prove to anyone either. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and I have nothing to prove to anyone, because Jesus loves me as I am. The gospel is able to purify our motivations, restore a balance to our self-regard, and it makes us no longer envious or afraid of others. Instead, we can serve the world. We're available because Christ has set us free. So God is calling you into the world to follow in his footsteps, to continue the ministry that he began. He's calling us to care for the vulnerable, who are unable to care for themselves. James is insisting that we seek out the people who can offer no reward in return because they have nothing. Your reward is that in doing so, you'll look like your savior, Jesus Christ. He sought us out when we could offer him no reward in return. And so he provides us with the motivation and opportunity to do the same for others in our city. And at the same time, God is calling us to pay attention to our own souls. He's calling us to be in the world, and yet he's insisting that we not become stained by it. The church has often treated this last verse of James as an either-or scenario, but for James, it's a both-and. We're called to be concerned with personal holiness, but not in such a way that we withdraw from our cities or from care of our neighbor. Rather, we're to go out in the power and the fullness of Christ. You see, when, when Jesus touched a leprous body during his ministry. Jesus did not become unclean like everyone else, but he turned the leprous body clean. The purity of Jesus was more infectious than the leprosy. So we're called to attend to our own holiness so that we step out in a power and a fullness that spills over into the lives of whoever we come into contact with. Infectious holiness. However, we must not let the great needs and demands of the world force us into a neglect of our own souls. We cannot be so consumed with the hungry that we fail to feed our souls. Jesus himself left great crowds of needy people in order to retreat into the mountains to pray by himself. It is shocking behavior for someone who called themselves the savior of humanity. But he had his own soul to attend to. What good is a savior with nothing to give? It was ultimately for humanity's good that he spent that time alone. For our Savior possessed in his soul the strength to carry through the will of the Father all the way to the cross and down into the grave. By the death of the Son, we have become God's children through grace. And so we are, living our days in the light and joy of divine grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son,